0: tune into the deep end podcast with pastor tim every tuesday night (laughs) let's go well hello everybody we are back and uh it's snowing outside in new england it's sunny in florida i am privileged to have locations in both places. And I am welcoming you into Tuesday night. It's your favorite night of the week. This is the deep end with me, your host, Tim Hatch. Hey everybody, welcome in. This is uh, Tuesday night, 7 p.m. We do this every week. Well, almost every week. We didn't do it last week, but we're doing it tonight. Tonight It is uh, 7 p.m. At t- on Tuesday on YouTube, uh, The Deep End TV. Um, I'm so glad that you're here with me. And uh, we just got done with a long work party, a work missions trip down here in Florida. And it has been one exhausting week. And I'm tired, but I'm here for you tonight. And I hope that you'll pray for me that I can get this content out with strength. Um I, I didn't want to miss two weeks in a row. I, I just love doing this so much, and I'm so excited about where we're going with the life of David and, and, and some weird news today as well. That's going to tie into the life of David, but, you know, I, I have a question for you. What's, what's deadlier than sharks? What's deadlier than sharks? You're never going to believe this. Selfies. <laughs> we're going to get to that in just a moment. But before we do that, I want you to do me a favor and I want you to like and subscribe on youtube.com slash the deep end TV. Youtube.com slash the deep TV. Um, make sure that you are connecting with us through that channel, youtube.com slash the end TV. And also, hello to Spotify, Twitch, radio in uh, Rhode Island, radio in Florida. And I want you to do me a favor, everybody. Uh, can you please subscribe? to the deep end. Always subscribe. Click the like button. Uh, Click the subscribe button over here on YouTube right below me, and then also click that notification bell. That's going to let you know when we are live every single time. Um, Yeah, we have some news to get to, and the news is very much in line with where we're going. As we get to a very important chapter in the life of David, the end of Saul and the beginning of David's Rain, but to get there first, we're going to talk about some news that applies to where we're going on the content today in First Samuel. So let's head over to Deep End News. Deep End News, the news you choose if you could choose news. All right, so uh, I, I got this new thing, and I'm sorry that you didn't hear the music last last week when we did, or two weeks ago when we did this. Um, We've got a new segment. It's, it's called Ridiculous News because there's so much ridiculous news. And all of these news outlets that are calling themselves real news outlets, it's funny to me. They're just ridiculous. They're so shamelessly ridiculous. I wanted to actually show you something. This is actually classic uh, news uh, in our country. Check this out. This is from The Guardian, and it's two articles written by the same person about masks during COVID-19 and shaming people who don't wear masks and whether or not we should. So same writer, same art article, same opinion article, and same uh, outlet, media outlet, The Guardian. Check this out. This is hilarious. The first article on the left, the title of the article, well, first is the subject is the, this week or the week in p- the patriarchy. <laughs> and this Writer Arwa Madawi says the title of the article, men are less likely to wear masks. Another sign that toxic masculinity kills. Okay, so men are less likely to wear masks. Another sign that toxic masculinity kills. Okay, so shame on men because they don't wear masks. Then in an opinion piece later on, the same article, the same writer, I'm sorry, the same writer and the same news outlet, the title of the article is shaming people who refuse to wear masks isn't a good look. Oh uh, wow okay get get it straight, ma'am. It's either you think we shouldn't shame people that wear masks or we should shame people that wear masks. anyway, that's not really the point of our news segment today, but it is a point of what we're going through as a country with ridiculous news. So I think you know what let's just let's just embrace the the news cycle and let's get a little bit ridiculous with our news here on the deep end. yes, cool ridiculous. Yeah. All right. So do you ever like taking a good selfie? Like who doesn't like taking a good selfie? I take selfies. I'm sure you take selfies. The, the selfie age is upon us. Actually, it's nothing new. They were taking selfies way back in the day. They just, just, they just had to paint them. So it took like a month. But nonetheless, selfies are, you know, this huge phenomenon of our generation. Well, guess what? Selfies kill selfies kill. This is from the New York Post and it's kind of an interesting article. Here's what it says. More people die taking selfies than in shark attacks. This is from February 14th, 2020. So it's a year old, but nonetheless. Uh, A survey of uh, Americans found that 41% of us have already risked our safety in pursuit of a selfie. While more than half of us would stand on the edge of a cliff for that ideal photo, more than 1 in 10, 11%, have sustained injuries while attempting a selfie. This is our world today. Narcissism is alive and well in 2020 and 2021, even if people put their lives in j- danger uh, to, to satisfy their need for attention. So this is a craze that's killing us. And, and the funny thing is, the article goes on to say, last summer, <laughs> which is the summer of uh, 2020, uh, t- 2019, the Journal of Family Medicine and Primary Care in India found that 259 people worldwide died in 137 selfie-related accidents between 2011 and 2017 compared to just 50 people who died of shark attacks. So five times the amount of people die of selfie-related incidents, selfie-taking-related incidents than people who die by sharks. I, I wanted to share some selfie facts for you just in case you're concerned about this growing phenomenon. You want to you wanna avoid the madness because you should. Uh, well, the, the the truth is there's a lot of stats that we're not familiar with about selfies. First off, they're not as... As big of a pie as we think in the uh, image category, the the picture taking category. So, four percent of all pictures are selfies. Uh, there are thirty five million selfies taken taken every year. Um, the average lifespan of a human being now in today's modern world, if you if this trend continues, the average person will take twenty five thousand seven hundred selfies over the course of their life. Um, This is interesting to me. Uh, The average selfie taker is 23 years of age, 23 and a half, a little bit over. Now, this one's funny. Those who go with the duck face, you know what the duck face is? The duck face. Let me do that. (laughs) Those who do the duck face, according according to statistics, are more likely to be emotionally unstable. Yeah. So you don't want to do the duck face selfie. I'm just saying. You don't want to do the duck face selfie. (laughs) Uh, Another uh, statistic, those who are addicted to taking selfies are suffering from, usually, uh, body dysmorphic disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, depression, anxiety, all of which can interfere with your daily functioning. And then the number one cities for taking selfies are uh, in the Philippines, a city called Makati City. Number two is Manhattan, obviously in New York, and Miami, Florida. So, the selfie craze is among us. The selfie craze is upon us, and it is getting insane. And we need to watch out for this selfie craze. It could kill us. But really, is it a picture or taking a picture that kills us? Let's be honest. That's not really what kills us, is it? What are we talking about today? Why, pastor, are you talking about selfies on the deep end? I mean, seriously, let's, let's, get, let's get our minds right about this and, 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 and figure this out. Well, the reason why is because it's not selfies that kill us. We can do all kinds of stupid things that can kill us. The problem is is that we kill us. We are people of self-destruction. And the selfie phenomenon is going to fade. There's no doubt in my mind. But the problem with self will never fade. And that's what we're talking about today on The Deep End. And we're going to get to it because we're going to get to the end of the selfie king, King Saul, and the beginning of the selfless king, King David. But we're going to get there in just a moment. I want to remind you one more time, like and subscribe on youtube.com slash TV. And make sure that you're watching us on that channel, guys, youtube.com slash And if you would, if you have questions, uh, and you want to do it anonymously, send them into 508-316-9333 or ask at the deep end TV. Um, make sure that you're supporting The Deep End at thedeepend.tv slash give or the cash tag uh, The Deep end TV or the PayPal page, paypal.me slash The Deep end TV. Thank you for your support. Thank you for being part of this night with me. I'm so glad that you are here. I'm so glad to get into this content. And if you like Bible study, well, this one's for you. It's going to pinch a bit because we're going to talk about the problem with you. And the problem with you <laughs> is you. <laughs> and so with that in mind, let's get into the life of David. Okay, so the title of this talk, the title of this talk, are you ready for it? Is How to Self Destruct. I know, not exactly the happy go lucky title that you're used to from the deep end. Actually, I don't think we ever have a happy go lucky title. <laughs> but anyway, not exactly this positive message, but it's an important message because we're gonna talk about first about how we self destruct, and then we're gonna talk about how not to self destruct. I, I-, I wanna to talk to you about this because it's so prevalent in our age of. Meism, and this is a problem for our country. It's a problem for the world, but it's a problem for human beings. This is nothing new. This is nothing new. Why does Cain kill Abel? Because he saw the righteous acts of his brother, and his were evil, and he hated the fact that his brother was righteous and he wasn't. And really, what it was it was that Cain just hated Abel, loved himself. Self is our enemy, and I want to talk to you about the idol of self. I truly believe, though, that we are living in unprecedented, unprecedented selfish times times of self-absorption. We are obsessed with self-esteem. We talk about self-image. We want to self-actualize. And in the church world, we are at all times highs of self-righteousness. Now, self-righteousness, obviously, there's the obvious self-righteous, which is the person who just looks down on others and points out their flaws and feels like they are better than them. But there's also something called the self-righteousness that we think saves us. In other words, I'm a good person. So therefore, I'm saved. I'm, I'm a moral person. I'm a Boy Scout. I'm a Girl Scout. I'm, you know, a, a highest, highly esteemed member of society. And so therefore, I am a good person. I'm going to heaven. No, that's just self-righteousness. And self-righteousness will not get you into heaven. The scripture doesn't say be righteous. The the scripture says hunger and thirst after his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not your own righteousness. Paul the apostle says, I don't have a righteousness of my own, but I have a righteousness that is from God that is mine through faith in Christ Jesus, who loved me and gave his life for me. So self-righteousness is going to self-destruct your spiritual life. And then, of course, there's self-serving religion that is rooted, that, that is the byproduct of self-righteousness, because we want religion to revolve around ourselves. We want to be blessed. We want to be highly favored. We want to be the you know, at the top of our careers, uh, uh, the pinnacle of our, our, our vocation. Not that these achievements are bad in and of themselves, but when your religion is all about actualizing these self-centered imaginations, you get yourself into a trap Of self-destruction. I was reading this article earlier today about the, the, the reason why younger people are leaving the church, and I was reading the article. It was written by a young person, and I read it, and I was just so shocked by the reasons. This person was just done with Christian faith, and the reason was all about them. It it had nothing to do with Christ. It had nothing to do with the gospel message. It had nothing to do with the fact that Jesus Christ died for their sins, rose again on the third day, ascended to the right-hand side of God the Father, and draws people to himself to this day out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It had no mention of that. All it talked about was how the church doesn't do what they want, how the church doesn't reach out to them, how the church doesn't listen to them, how the church doesn't include them, how the church doesn't, uh, you know, (laughs) whatever, you know, uh, uh, appease them, really. This... This is self-centered religion. This is self-serving religion. And I and I have to say that the article itself was actually the epitome of the reason why people reject God, because of a love of self. And a love of self will make you look at the church and say, see, the church is doing that, therefore I don't want any part of the church. Okay, the problem might not be with the church. The problem might be with you. Okay, because the church is, still, is filled not with good people, but with saved people. And being saved doesn't make you necessarily a good person sometimes. It makes you a redeemed person, a person brought back to God, a person that is on the path toward righteous behavior more and more, increasing, being transformed ever more from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't make you a perfect person. And I think that there is a sort of self-righteousness in our age of, I'm done with the church because the church is bad. But aren't you therefore becoming self-righteous in condemning the church because it doesn't meet your self-centered needs of self-actualization for self-righteous aims? See, the most destructive part of you is you. Jeremiah 17:9 says, the heart is deceitful. The heart, the human heart, this right here, is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick and no one can understand it. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 9, 3, this is from the New Living Translation. Let me read it. Ecclesiastes 9.3. This is Solomon at the end of his days, at the end of his life, bemoaning the human condition. He says, It seems so wrong that everyone under the sun suffers the same fate. Already twisted by evil, people choose their own mad course, for they have no hope. There is nothing ahead but death anyway. There's the twisted evil heart inside of us. And until you understand that, Until you realize that, you are going to follow your own selfish aims, self-centered religion, self-righteous living, and believe that you are self-justified, and nothing could be further from the truth. And the archetype of this kind of person in the Bible is a guy named Saul. Not Saul of Tarsus, because he actually becomes Paul the Apostle, and he becomes a mighty, mighty man of God. So let's let's get into this question, right? Okay, this question is important. Um... What is the dominant theme of your life? What is the dominant theme of your life? So when you're dead and they got one choice to put one word on your tombstone, what do you want it to be? Other than the birth date and the death date. Like one word. Let's just say. Sum up your life. One word. Let's do a couple of experiments. How about Tom Brady? This guy won his seventh Super Bowl. I I am so mad because I am a New England Patriots fan. And he was there and they weren't. Anyway. Anyway. One word for Tom Brady, football, right? How about Billy Graham? One word for Billy Graham, what would you say? Evangelism, right? I would say that, evangelist. He had a heart to reach people for the gospel. Uh, How about Elon Musk? What what, what would you say? I would say innovation. Innovation or brilliance or um, breaking the mold. I don't know, that's that's three words. (laughs) Uh, What about Joanna Gaines? What would you say? My wife loves Joanna Gaines. What would you say? Design, right? She's, she's fantastic at design. Well, what about Bible characters? What, what would you say? What's the dominant theme of Abraham's life? I would say faith. He the one that was justified by faith. The first person justified by faith was Father Abraham. How about David? Since we're in the life of David. I would say his one word would be anointing. How about Paul the Apostle? I would say his one word would be gospel. He was all about spreading the gospel. Now, what about you? What's the dominant theme of your life? What do you want people to say about you in one word when you are dead and gone? Hey, put that down in the comments below. That'd be fantastic. Put that down in the comments below. I'd love to hear it if you're not too shy to share it. Um, because you need to solve this question. And I want this question to be solved in my own life. But you need to solve this question before it's too late and you're remembered for the wrong thing. <laughs> You got to be intentional about the theme of your life or your life will decide for itself. Okay, listen to that again. You have to be intentional about the dominant theme of your life or your life will decide for itself. Figure this out now so that you if you don't like that current answer to the question, what's the dominant theme of your life, so that you don't like that answer, so that you can change it. There we go. I think I'm getting better with the volume. I'm sorry, everybody. but But... I want you to seriously consider this. The reason why I talk so much about this is because Saul's dominant theme is on full display at the end of his life. Okay, already? Let's, let's get into the text. 1 Samuel, chapter 31, verse 1. This is the last chapter of 1 Samuel, by the way, and we'll get into 2 Samuel as well. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines, look at how quickly this is just stated, as a matter of fact. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, Malchai, Shua, the sons of Saul. Gone. They're all gone. In a second. Verse 3, the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Moving on. Then Saul, verse 4, said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. Now, now Saul has a case here because in the ancient world you humiliated kings by disemboweling them when you captured them. So there's a lot of hurt there's a lot of hurt there's a lot of pain on Saul's way. So he turns to his armor-bearer. He says, "Kill me lest these guys you know mistreat me and do those nasty things to me." But it's, but the Bible says, "His armor-bearer would not for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it, it's suicide." And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell in a sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And by the way, remember in chapter 28 that Saul, who uh, appealed to dead Samuel, dead Samuel at the Witch of Endor, he comes out of the grave, or he comes out of the, the, the place of death, and says, on the same day, you and your three sons are going to die. So Saul, Samuel's words are fulfilled. And remember, one of the themes of 1 Samuel is, who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Listen to God's prophets. They are right. And so anyway, Samuel is once again, right, with the death of Saul. Now, back to this question. What's the dominant theme of Saul's life? What's the dominant theme of Saul's life? The answer is simple. Self. Saul was completely self-centered. Now, he's the first suicide in the Bible. Now, I know, there if you think about it, the first suicide technically is Samson. But remember, that Samson's suicide actually killed a lot of Philistines and helped deliver Israel for a few moments. So his suicide was more of a uh, purposeful suicide, if you will, King Saul's suicide is the first completely self-centered suicide in the Bible. He's just out to make sure that he suffers the least amount of pain that he can possibly suffer. This is, Saul of, this is King Saul's dominant theme, self. Now, I bring you to the New Testament because this is something that we are warned about in our New Testament text. Paul the Apostle Uh, writes to his protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy—actually, I'm going to be in 2 Timothy—he writes two letters. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul the Apostle writes this to his protege. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. This is 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. Now verse 2. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, unappeasable. Slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Okay, this is, uh, this is what Paul describes for where and when, for the last days. Oh, and then by the way, he says, avoid such people. This passage is pretty scary. Yeah, right? This is the wake-up call. In the last days. Now look at the list of the things that are going to happen in the last days. People are going to be proud, abusive, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, treacherous, reckless. Hello, 2020. Hello, what we have seen for the last 16 months in this country, in our world. And, and America is tame compared to the rest of the world. This is worse in other countries in many respects. But the, but the aspirations of these, uh, I'm sorry, but the uh, descriptions of the last days where Paul says are going to be times of difficulty. Can, can you just notice that the first thing on the list is not, um, you know, things like being abusive or uh, unappeasable or heartless or, or brutal, but the, the, the very first thing on the list is what? People will be lovers of self. And that's the first thing on the list that's going to make the last days times of difficulty, Paul says. Years ago it was written, years ago it was written by a prophetess of our previous generation. Her name was Whitney Houston, (laughs) obviously not a biblically uh, sound prophetess. She wrote a song called, or she sang a song, I don't know if you wrote it, The Greatest Love of All. Remember when rock songs used to be about the other person? She writes about herself. I quote the song. I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadow. If I fail, if I succeed, at least I'll live as I believe. At least I'll live as I believe. No matter what they take from me, they can't take away my dignity because the greatest love of all is happening to me. What love, Whitney? Here it is. I found the greatest love of all inside of me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself, it is the greatest love of all. This is nothing new. This love of self is nothing new. And this has been the mantra of the age for decades. And it's not slowing down in our self-centered generation. Back to the Apostle Paul. Times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self. Now, the word difficulty in the Greek, okay, the word difficulty in the Greek here is chalapas, uh, and it means to reduce one's strength. It means to weaken someone. You know why the times are going to be weakening? Because people will love themselves. And I thought about this. This is a very important point. The more you love yourself, the weaker you are in life. The And because here's what happens with the love of self. You love yourself so much you don't want anyone else around. You don't want anybody else's help. You don't need it. Here's another way that, that, that American quote-unquote Christians live out the love of self mantra. I don't need church. I do church on my own. What? The word church in the Greek means the, assemble, the, the assembled or the assembly. You can't do an assembly with just you. This, uh, this love of self in our age has just infiltrated every part of our society, including many millions self-proclaimed Christians. They love themselves, and then they wonder why they're so weak and anemic spiritually. You can't be strong when you isolate and self-love. It actually weakens you. We're, we're taught that if we just believe in ourselves and trust ourselves and go with what we think is right, that we'll do well. And the scripture actually says the scripture actually says the exact opposite. It Says the exact opposite. Ecclesiastes four nine says two are better than one because they have a good reward. If they fall, one will lift them up. Woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no one to lift them up. Verse eleven says if two lie together, they will keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. him. Sorry. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. That's Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12. Did you know that there are over 50 one another's in the New Testament admonishing us to help each other, care for each other? I give you a few of them. Mark 9, 50. Be at peace with each other. I'm sorry. Be at peace with one another. John 13, 14. Wash one another's feet. John 13, 34. Love one another. How about Romans 14, verse 13? Stop passing judgment on one another. How about Romans 16, 16? Greet one another. How about 1 Corinthians 12, 25? 1 Corinthians 12, 25 says, have equal concern for one another. Galatians 5, 13, serve one another. How about uh, Galatians 6, 2? Carry each other's burdens. How about Ephesians 4, 2? Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians 5.19, submit to I'm sorry, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another, out the reverence for Christ. Colossians 3.9, do not lie to each other. Colossians 3.13, bear with each other. Colossians 3.16, teach one another. Colossians 3.16, admonish one another. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, make your love increase and overflow for each other. James 4.11, do not slander one another. James 5.9, don't grumble against each other. James 5.16, confess your sins to each other. 1 Peter 3.8, love one another deeply from the heart. 1 Peter 4.8, love each other deeply. 1 Peter 4.9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. 1 Peter 4.10, each one of you should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Love one another, 1 John 3, 11, 1 John 3, 23, 1 John 4, 7, 1 John four 11, 1 John four 12, 2 John, verse 5. Love one another. All over the Bible. You can't do Christianity if you don't have a group of one another's. You can't. You can't follow Jesus. You can't follow Jesus and not love one another and not serve one another and not be engaged in life with one another. See, the more you love yourself, the more you love this yourself, the weaker yourself becomes. That's the truth. And this is Saul's problem and it is the struggle of every person. I'm not picking on Saul because Saul is a, a picture of us. He's a picture of the human condition that needs Jesus and yet rejects him. Remember, Saul's problem was that he rejected. He rejected David and David came to help him and, get, and David came to, to be a benefit to Saul's life and, and Saul wasn't having it. He rejected David is a picture of those who reject Christ and love self. Now, Let's not leave you there because we need a biblical view of self. And I want to give you three points to the biblical view of self. Genesis 1:28, 26 to 28 teaches us that you, number one, are made in God's image. Number, number two, you are born of Adam. So you are born of, in a sinful condition. That's Romans five twelve, And number three, Jesus came to redeem and rescue you and bring you back to God. And that's all over the Bible. That's all over the Bible. That's the point of the story. That's the point of the Bible. You were lost. Well, now, the point of the Bible is you were made in the image of God. You are lost, and that image is broken and flawed. And number three, Jesus came to bring you back and restore that image inside of you through the Holy Spirit. That's why Romans 5, 6-8 five uh, to eight says this, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for us, for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the aim of the gospel, to die for ungodly people. God came to die for ungodly people. Never forget that. This is the aim of the gospel. The aim of the gospel is not follow the rules and you get in. The aim of the gospel is you can't follow the rules. The problem is you. You need a savior. He came to help you. He came to die for you even when you didn't deserve it. Saul rejects this. Saul rejects this because he is consumed with self his self-centered kingdom. We're going to get to it a little bit more as we go on. Well, Let's go on into the passage, verse seven of 1 Samuel chapter 31. It says, When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. So the Philistines just occupy Israel. They shouldn't, but they do. Then it says in verse eight, The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bashan. This is, you know, ancient world warfare. It's brutal. Verse 11. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the walls of Bashan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took the bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So there's these guys that actually you know, kind of rescue Saul's body. And the reason why they rescue Saul's body, Jabesh Gilead, guys, is because years earlier, when Saul was, you know, starting off right as a kingdom, uh, as a king, he went and saved the men of Jabesh Gilead from a guy named um, uh, Nahash the Ammonite. And it was actually Saul's first victory. It actually what solidified Saul's kingdom and reign in Israel was this deliverance of the men of Jabesh Gilead from Nahash the Ammonite. But anyway... There's this loyalty. And by the way, you have to remember that in Israel, there's this, there's still this fierce loyalty to Saul and will remain in Saul even after Saul's dead. I'm sorry, and will remain in Israel even long after Saul's dead and will be a problem for David. And this is gonna be a, provide us another picture of our, our sanctification. The process of our sanctification is that though Christ comes in as David comes in to reign in Israel, there's still vestiges of Saul's kingdom that are resisting the reign of David in Israel. And so when you come to Christ and you get saved. Jesus comes into you, there's still going to be vestiges of old you trying to usurp the reign of Jesus inside of you. And that's the next chapter that we're going to look at in David's life, the next, you know, several chapters of 2 Samuel. But but what you're going to see, what you see here is that Saul is uh, is, is dead and, and they bury him. And the question has to be asked, and it's a very important question, what caused the downfall of King Saul? Like at the end of the day, what caused? Now I know, self, right? Self. And, and and I get it, and and I've talked about that. That's my that's my point. Self is the problem with Saul. But what does that look like? Because I think if we can get a look at that, if we can get a clear picture of the foul, the the downfall of Saul, we'll save ourselves from similar fate. What does it look like to be sub- obsessed with self? Okay, four points from Saul's life. Number one, he let opinions rule his life. And uh, by the way, this let me just put in man's opinions. Okay, he let man's opinions rule his life. Back in First Samuel thirteen, there's this story where Saul uh, is waiting for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice so that they can go to and and an perform holy war, and um, Samuel is delayed, and so it says in First Samuel thirteen eleven that when saw Saul, Saul, the people scattering, he offered the sacrifice which was unlawful for Israel's kings, and uh, and then it says this. This is Saul's words. He says. Um, when I saw the people scattering from me, that you did not come within the appointed time, and that the Philistines had mustered at Mixmash, I said, "Now the Philistines will come down against me in Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord." So I forced myself. Okay, actually, I have this on the screen. So I forced myself, and offered the burnt offering. Check that out. Self, but what was the reason? Why? Because he saw that the people were scattering from him. The opinions of the people the opinions of the people is what did Saul in. And so he says, I forced myself because the people were scattering. I forced myself because the people were scattering from me. And, and he's letting the opinions of people rule his life. Number two, he could not take a rebuke. He he could not take a rebuke. Okay, so this is 1 Samuel 15, 19. Check this out. This is after he doesn't do exactly what God does, wants them to do uh, concerning the Amalekites. He, should, he was supposed to wipe them out completely and destroy everything that they own, wipe out the nation, and he doesn't. And so Samuel comes in and, and confronts him, rebukes him, and says, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalek, Amalekites to destruction. But the people, again, the people took the spoil not me, it's the people. No, you did it, Saul. You're the leader. <laughs> he says, they took the sheep, the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God and, and Gilgal, So I, I, I'm trying to serve the Lord by doing this. This is feigned spirituality, feigned religiosity, feigned devotion to God. It reminds me of the people who say, oh, I'll give it to God. As soon as I make millions of dollars, I'm going to give it to God. Absolutely. No, you won't. If you're cheap now, you're cheap, you'll be cheap no matter when you, how much we have. <laughs> it's truth. So he can't take a rebuke. Number three, he saw others as, uh, I'm sorry, he let his emotions run wild. He let his emotions run wild. And the reason why uh, we know this from Saul is because at one point he wants to kill his son, he wants to kill David, he wants to kill his daughter, he wants to kill people around him. And then at the other po- at, at other moments he's weeping, he's so happy for them, he loves them. You know, at one point he's hunting David down, at another point he wants David to rule and reign, and he knows he's going to be the king, and this guy's emotions are like a roller coaster. And in the end, his self-love was, uh, was uh, exemplified, was on display through this up and down relationship with himself in which he was always letting himself down or always beating himself up or celebrating himself. And he let his self-love draw, uh, run his emotions and he was just an emotional basket case. Number four, he saw others as a threat. He saw other people as a threat. His son, Jonathan and David, mostly uh, people got sent to help Saul he wanted to kill. In the end Saul's biggest problem was self-love. So we, we 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 need to turn the page now from 1 Samuel, which is the end of Saul, to 2 Samuel, which is the beginning of David's reign. This is kind of like the conversion point for us when we come into the kingdom of of David, the kingdom of Jesus. Saul has to die so that Jesus might live. Amen. So we turn the page to 2 Samuel chapter 1. And I believe in the Old Testament, in the old ancient world, these two books were one book, but they split them up to make it more readable. I don't know why. But anyway, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse, verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David returned two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell on the ground and paid homage. Verse 3, and David said to him, where have you come from? He said, I, I, I escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from battle, and also many of the people fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Verse 5, then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on a spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me, for, my, for anguish has seized me, yet my life lingers. So Saul tried to kill himself, but he failed, obviously. And he looks at this guy, this Amalekite, and says, kill me. So verse 10, so I stood beside him, the, the Amalekite says, listen to this, so I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head, and the arm that was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. This guy thinks he's done David a favor. Now check this out, David's response, this is, this is so good, verse 11, then David took hold of the clothes of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. They were, they were devastated by this. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and, his John, and for Jonathan the son and the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where did he come from? And he answered, I am a sojourner. Look at this, an Amalekite. An Amalekite. Who killed Saul ultimately? Who killed Saul ultimately? An Amalekite. You say, why? Why are you, why are you emphasizing this? Because remember, we just talked about this, that back in 1 Samuel chapter um, 15, one of Saul's missions was to thoroughly destroy the Amalekites. That's an old ancient mission from before the people got into the land. They were supposed to wipe out all the nations, and they didn't. That's the problem with Israel. That's why they eventually absorbed the nations and then adopt, adopted the, the actions of the nations, the habits of the nations, and, they, and those nations corrupted Israel because Israel never cut them out and destroyed them from the land. And Saul doesn't kill the Amalekites. Guess what happens? An Amalekite kills Saul. And he actually gets to the point where he begs the Amalekite to kill him. The guy he was supposed to kill, he begs that guy to kill him. Do you see what's happening here? This is really good. This is really important for us. It's an illustration. If you don't kill sin, it will kill you. Now, I didn't say that. A guy named John Owen from 1656, a Puritan theologian said it, quote, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. John Owen, um, many many refer to him as the greatest English-speaking theologian in history. He wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, written in 1656. He was also part of uh, the British Parliament at the time. And he writes this book about how to win the spiritual battle for yourself for your spiritual life. And he says, you got to kill sin or it's going to kill you. And he said, well, that's great. It sounds good, pastor. How do you do it? How do you do it? Well, he says that this, and this is good. This is really good. He says, you got to go deeper than just the habits. And the first part of the book, he actually talks about how not to kill sin, how not to kill sin, which is really good because we need to, we need to know what not to do before we need to know what we should do. And he says there are four things that that, that don't kill sin. Number one, Faking it like you're not a sinner that doesn't kill sin. Number two, uh, having a calm disposition, in other words, relax, you're okay. That doesn't kill sin. Number three, cross addiction, which means you're addicted to, uh, you know, self flagellation, self mutilation. That's not, no, that's not it. That's the ancient practices got to be dispelled. We don't beat ourselves, we don't whip ourselves like some Catholics have done over the course of human history. And behavior modification, behavior modification is big because he thinks he says this, he's like, you know resisting saying what you shouldn't say is not actually killing sin. It's just, it's just temporarily postponing it because the sin nature is r- deeper in you than you realize. There's a root. And until you take care of the root, you will never win the battle with the fruit of your life. So he says this, and this is fantastic. Let no man pretend to fear sin that does not fear temptation also. These two are too closely united to be separate. How does, uh, he does not truly hate the fruit who delights in the root. Basically, he says in the book, you've got to go deeper. Sin starts with temptation. That's a heart issue. Your heart is drawn to these things, and you have to kill that. You have to take that on, and you have to take that to Christ. Don't take your sin to Christ. Take that heart issue to Christ. You have to let his power overpower the power of your heart, which loves to rebel against God. And so he says, in the moment of temptation— You say to God right there, I want to disobey. I want to sin. I want to go this way. I can't, I can't stop. You need to stop it for me. And then he says, you got to believe then. See, this is what we have to to remember is faith, right? We are saved by faith. Well, faith that saves is also faith that sanctifies. And so we, by faith, believe that God is going to root that temptation out. And then we have to trust the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, and, and, believe that the power of the Holy Spirit is strong, stronger than the power of sin. This is important and I- I- imperative for the Christian. And he says it like this. Uh, you got you to pray, you got to do all those things, and he's gotta, you got to abide in prayer. He says, quote, if we do not abide in prayer, we will abide in temptation. Let, be, let this be one aspect of our daily intercession. God preserve my soul and keep my heart in all its ways so that I will not be entangled. I love that. Daily prayer. God preserve my soul and keep my heart in all its ways so that I will not be entangled. That's a great daily prayer. When this is true our lives when this is true in our lives, I'm sorry, a passing temptation will not overcome us. You've got to be steadfast in this prayer. Father, preserve me. I, I know what I'll do. I'll self-destruct, but you will. Save me. See, th- this is this is why we have to address the root, not the fruit. It's not just, God, please help me not to. No, it's God, here's my root of sin. I want to disobey you. And I need you to help me get away from this sin. I know I won't in my own power. I don't have that power. If I had the power to save me, you wouldn't have sent Jesus, God. So send him right now in this moment to save me from myself. Okay, back to 1 Samuel, verse 14. I'm sorry, 2 Samuel, chapter 1, verse 14. David said to him, how is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand and destroy the Lord's anointed? So this is the guy that killed Saul. He says, well, you were okay with this? Then David called one of his young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So David takes vengeance on this man for Saul's death. And by the way, this is, oh, this is so good. David, okay, executes the man who killed Saul. Did you hear that? David killed the man who killed Saul. Now, if this is a picture for us, now if if the Bible is what Jesus says it is, a book about him, Christ is the new David, right? The true David. We are our old nature as Saul. Sin is killing us. And here's what happened at the cross 2,000 years ago. Sin, which was trying to kill us, Jesus came and killed for us. So here's the truth. Christ Jesus is our true David who kills what has the capacity to kill you. You can't kill sin. He kills sin. Mm. Praise you, Jesus. That, that, that's just, if that doesn't draw you into praise, I don't know what will. <laughs> I just love that. Okay, continuing on. Verse 17, and David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jassar. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Have you heard that phrase? That's where the, it comes from the Bible, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. That's the city of uh, is, uh, the Philistines. Publish it not in the streets of Ascalon. That's another city of the Philistines. Let not the daughter of the Philistines rejoice. Let not let the daughters of the uncircumcised, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. Verse 21, you mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty has, has was defiled, the shield of Saul, not, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, From the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen, verse 25, in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother. My brother, Jonathan, very pleasant you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. So, so David laments the death of Saul, and it is a picture for us of Christ. He knows that we are not anointed in ourselves. He knows that we can't win this battle. He knows, and he weeps for us. Remember when Jesus rides on the donkey into Jerusalem, the Bible says he weeps. Remember when he's at the grave of Lazarus and he sees the result of sin, which is death, the death of his friend Lazarus in that case in John 11, and he weeps. Uh, This is the heart of Jesus for you. He's, He's not mad at you. He's sad for you and me and in our struggle with sin, and yet the glorious truth of the gospel is that he wasn't just sad, he was successful in winning the battle for us. He conquered for us. He, he fought for us. He won for us. And so now he sits enthroned in glory, championing us onward in Christ, in himself. This is the beauty of the gospel. We don't have a God who points and accuses. We have a God who steps in and absorbs the wrath of sin, the wrath of, the wrath of God for us, Jesus weeps for you and did something for you and saves you. This is is how not to (laughs) self-destruct. Turn to the power that is more powerful than the power of self inside of you. Right? Here's how we're going to sum this up. How not to self-destruct. Number one, we have an enemy within. The problem with you is you. Number two, we need a victory from outside of us. So it can't come from inside of us. The world tells you, look inside. The Bible tells you, look to Jesus. Number three, we have a Savior who came to die for us so that sin might not live in us. We've got to deal with that root, not the fruit. And number four, we have His power available to save us and strengthen us. We have His power available to strengthen us and save us even now, even today. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Turn to Him. Repent. No matter how bad you've failed, no matter how far you have fallen, turn to Him and repent. Yourself is at stake. What do you want to be the dominant theme of your life? What do you want to be the dominant theme of your life? Let me know in the comments one more time, because here's what I think the answer should be. Saved. Saved and sustained. I'm sorry, somebody closed the door. Over there. Saved by Jesus. Amen, everybody. All right. Visit the deep end TV uh, because on the deep end TV, you're going to be able to get my book uh, I think so. Anyway, uh, my book is available March 2021. 20, That's a, less than three weeks away. It's called Move, Entering into God's Promises for You. It's available for pre-order on Amazon at uh, timhatchlive.com slash books, timhatchlive.com slash books. Check it out. And uh, please make sure that you visit The Deep End TV. Follow us on all our, of our social media pages. Most importantly, oops! Most importantly, follow us. Where do I always say to follow us? Where? You should know this by now. YouTube.com slash The Deep End TV. YouTube.com slash The Deep End TV. Make sure you like and subscribe to the channel. Click the notification bell, get updates, find out when we are live, watch previous episodes, share this episode on social media. I'd be very happy if you did that. But other than that, it's been great to be with you. I will see you next week here on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near...